You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. There's a point every time I write, and I think when a lot of people write, where you just have to submit to what the book is going to be. And I was like, I guess it's Arthur Less again. This event was presented as part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling, a short series of Big Ideas program. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Capitol. I'm Paula Toll, the head of RMIT Culture, and it is my pleasure to welcome you tonight for this event, which forms part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling, a short series of big ideas. And Melbourne certainly has turned on the spring, maybe it's summer weather for us today, so it's nice to be in the cool theatre. I would firstly like to acknowledge the people of the Woiwurrung and the Boomerang language groups of the Eastern Kulin Nation on whose unceded lands we gather this evening and acknowledge their continuing contribution to the cultural life of, of this vibrant city. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. I pay my respects to ancestors past and present and celebrate emerging First Nations leaders and also any First Nations people joining us here tonight. Aramati Culture is thrilled to be partnering with the Wheeler Centre as part of Spring Fling to present tonight's conversation between Pulitzer Prize winning author Andrew Sean Greer and writer broadcaster Benjamin Law as they discuss aging, grief and unavoidable change to find creativity, friendship and love. Now, Andrew Sean Greer reunites with Benjamin Law to talk about his latest book, Less is Lost. Andrew is the Pulitzer Prize winning author of six works of fiction, including the bestsellers, The Conversations of Max Tivoli and Less. Andrew has taught at a number of universities, including the Iowa Writers Workshop. He's been a Today Show pick, a New York Public Library Coleman Center Fellow, a judge for the National Book Award, and a winner of the California Book Award and the New York Public Library Young Lions Award. He's a recipient of an NEA grant and the Guggenheim Fellowship, and of course, the recipient of the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Benjamin Law is, of course, the author of The Family Law, Gazia, and the quarterly essay, Moral Panic, the editor of Growing Up Queer in Australia, and he's also an Augie Award-winning screenwriter who created and co-wrote three seasons of the award-winning TV series, The Family Law, wrote and so- the sold-out main stage play, Torch and Place, and is co-executive producer, co-creator, and co-writer of the forthcoming Netflix comedy drama, Well Mania. Every week, Benjamin co-hosts ABC National- Radio National's weekly national pop culture show, Stop Everything, and interviews public figures for the Good Weekend magazine. So please join me in welcoming to the stage Andrew, Sean Greer, and Benjamin Law. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paula. Hey, Andrew. You know, when Paula was saying that, I just realised she's correct. Like, this is a reunion of a double act that I feel will just continue every time a book comes out. Just just to recap, for any of you who weren't here, I'm going to take you back to May 2019, which is the last time we saw each other. Time is meaningless. I don't expect any of you to have a reference point as to what 2019 actually means. We started by talking about your incredible outfit then. And just to recap, Andrew, I'm just going to paint a picture here. Andrew was wearing leather pants. Um, They were bespoke. They were made for you in Paris. Um, You were also wearing a striped blazer purchased in Milan on a post-Pulitzer spending spree. Yeah. we're going to get to the book soon, but we, we don't talk about literary fashion enough, and you are wearing also an incredible outfit tonight, and I'd like you to lead us through what you're wearing. <laughs> it's because on Instagram, Rachel, right there, challenged me. She said, can you do better than the leather pants from last time? <laughs> and I was like, what have I got? <laughs> I have a crazy pink shirt, but that has like, I don't know what all this is. You can tie in a pussy bow. You can you tie want. it in a pussy bow. That is a sentence I like to but hear. Not tonight. Yep. Yeah. Also, the shoes, come on. Crazy shoes. Actually, I bought online on eBay and I had to repair, but you'd never know. <laughs> yeah, and a weird, crazy silk suit that I got on a... I did um, Valentino for their last ad campaign. They got a lot of writers to... Um, mostly gay male writers, mm-hmm. let's admit. Um, 
to give them a couple sentences that they could like use in their ad campaign. And they gave us each like a little shopping spree. This what? is it. Oh my God. This is proper Valentino and Balenciaga shoes, I see. Just, just from putting eBay. it up. eBay. I didn't buy any of this stuff. This is a hundred bucks, you know, like that's a lot for shoes. We are going to spend the rest of the next hour just talking about fashion. So apologies to anyone <laughs> who wanted to. to have a literary conversation. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Hey, let's go back in time. We're already going back in time. Uh, let's go way back to 2018, right? Uh, Less is published. It's pre-pandemic. That stuff hasn't happened yet. And in a very Less-esque scene slash scenario, you're changing an incontinent pug's diaper at a Tuscan writer's residency when you learn you've won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. Michael Chabon, name, we'll just drop it there, is the first person that you talk to who confirms this is all actually real. And I'm curious to know, what has writing and life been like since that moment for you? I do remember one thing that Michael said was he said, there's no downside to this, Hmm. and now you can write whatever you want. And that has been totally true. Uh There was no downside. Like, it was like, no one was mad at me about it. Um, um, even, even my employer, when I had to leave the job, um, was a 94 year old Baronessa who I love very much, but I couldn't work for her anymore. And, um, (laughs) and then I, I, then I could, you know what the biggest change was actually like, I would, sometimes I would, I would go to New York. I live in San Francisco and I would try to go to one of those cocktail parties where there are going to be a lot of writers or important people. And I would try to impress them with who I was and try to get somewhere. And and I don't have to do that anymore at all. (laughs) It's totally nonsense. And so like, I can actually just hang out with my friends and not try to do that. I was never good at that anyway. (laughs) When I um, talked to Geraldine Brooks about the Pulitzer, she said there were two camps of people who, um, who have different kind of headspaces when they win, win the Pulitzer. One is your camp, and the second camp is those who feel absolutely crippled because it can only go downhill from here. What are they going to do after winning the Pulitzer Prize of fiction? Did you, was there any post-less book pressure no, weighing on no. you at all? Uh, pressure, sh- but, you know, I call, there's a little tradition of calling the next Pulitzer winner when they win, um, which it broke the line broke down at some point, but then I started it up again. So I called Richard Powers when he mm. won, and uh, and he said, "Oh shit, this means I'm not going to work for a year, doesn't it?" <laughs> and I'm like, "No, it means you get to go to Australia." I mean, I was like, "It's all good," but he did not see it that way. He was like, "This is a disaster." Wow. Yeah. Okay. Very different headspace there. But the, I don't. I mean, I think the pressure, sh- sure, but I don't think it was because of the prize. Um, I think it's because people actually started reading my books. Mm. That was a new experience for me. (laughs) And that meant like, oh, God, people are going to read the next one probably and then comment on it. Yeah. Whether it's as good or, you know, that kind of thing. I wasn't, hadn't thought about that before. We're going to save that for the audience questions. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, thanks for giving us that that recap. It feels like previously on Andrew Sean Greer. And I want to do a previously on Arthur Less now because uh, when we think about that pretty sublime ending of Less, um, the first instalment in this this series, um, you know, where was Arthur Less when we last saw him and what has happened since before we meet him in this new book? That is, no one has ever asked me that before. Uh-huh. Um, well, we leave him at the end of the book and you're right, it has an ending. There's no need, wasn't calling for a sequel. Hmm. Um, uh, walking up the steps to his home in San Francisco, which is on, not on a street, but on, on stairs, which often happens there on a hill and that there is someone waiting for him at the top. Hmm. Uh, and that's the last we see of him. And then uh, it's a, in the meantime, in between, he, before we catch him in Less is Lost, he finishes his novel at, um, he books himself in a cheap hut on the coast in Mexico that's solar powered so that he has to wake up at dawn and, uh, and, and write until the sun sets and then he can't work anymore. Uh-huh. Um, and I think he um, like cuts his foot and like, 
and he's trapped in the hut for a while. I don't know. I might have. Short, I think I shortened it for the novel. But he's like, and then so it's been almost two years before mm. he comes back after this round the world trip and last, and then going to Mexico. It's been a while since he's been to his own country. Yeah, and when we um, when we start this new book, Less Is Lost, the sequel to Less, um, minor American novelist Arthur Less, uh, within the first fifteen pages. So hopefully, I'm not giving away too much here. Um, Les's first love, the famous poet Robin, Robert Brownburn, has died, and it creates an emotional and a financial calamity in Les's life, and that really propels him into this new adventure around America. And I believe, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that what he is about to embark on is partly inspired by something that happened to you, <laughs> where, where you took a six-week RV trek across the American South. What, what propelled you or what inspired you to do, to do that? Well, I, I have been very impressed here with how closely Australians are, are following American politics. Mm. <laughs> so you might remember we had a presidential election in 2016 that turned out a surprising direction. And I, I thought to myself, I don't think I understand this country. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm always happy with maybe I'm wrong. What, what did you think it was, and what was the reality that was starting to emerge? Well, well a lot of, at the time, um, friends of mine were saying, um, um, the left wing, they don't understand the working class, and you've, mis you've misunderstood them. There's whole parts of the country that the coastal elites have, have not, have snobbishly looked down on. Mm which is not the narrative I have today about what happened. Um, so I thought, I'm up for that. I'm up for, for being a jerk. Like that's totally, definitely possible. So I, I immediately rented an RV and I went, I did it in two different trips, down into the American Southwest, Arizona, New Mexico, and then I went into the Deep South mm. where I really wanted to go because it was what scared me the most. Mm. Alabama, uh -huh. Mississippi, yeah. Georgia, Louisiana, yeah. Mm. And what did you find? I found that, well, I tried to, this is, I put this in the book, but I tried to disguise myself. My mom was really scared for me, certainly in the South. She's from the South. So she told me to, to call everyone sir or ma'am, uh -huh. that everyone likes that down there, um, to, not to tell them I was from San Francisco, Tell them I'm from Maryland, which I am, <laughs> um, which is technically the South, but no one there would believe that. And um, and uh, and to maybe dress differently. Uh huh. Uh huh. So I went to a Walmart, our big store. You don't have WalMarts here, do you? Uh, do we? Yet? Like a I don't giant, so. like no. five times the size of this room. Uh huh. With crap in it. I went to one of those and I bought like a, a giant T-shirt with a country music band and cargo shorts and a baseball cap and some American flags and like the, the kind of sunglasses no homosexual would ever wear, which are like the wraparound <laughs> sunglasses. And I was like, the disguise is complete. <laughs> um, you're painting quite an indelible picture in our minds. <laughs> but as, as you say all of that, it also sounds like you're doing drag. <laughs> <laughs> it was drag, because it's all drag, right? So I was definitely in drag as a, as a heterosexual white middle-aged man. And I'm like, the South is made for me. And what was interesting is like, it fooled nobody. <laughs> I would leave, I would I would be like I would go to like a really rural bar and sit there and put music on the jukebox and they'd be like honey everyone's welcome here. <laughs> <laughs> this this is actually not the first time you do this kind of trip because um Pre-less years, this all reminds me of an essay you wrote for McSweeney's back in 2010. Oh, my God, Which, yeah. when I've taught creative nonfiction and I've always used it as a really? reference point for students. I haven't told you this, actually. Um, and it involves you going to the NASCAR races. So, is there an instinct? I mean, tell us a little bit about that. But also tell us, is there an instinct in you that wants to be a fish out of water to see what you can harvest from that? Well, it was, I have to say, it was Dave Eggers' idea. Uh -huh. He called me up and he said, you know what would be super funny? If you went to a NASCAR race and reported on it as a sports column for, he was making like a sort of faux newspaper 
uh, to be handed out on the street by like newsboys. Yeah. And so, like, and, and for those of us who aren't familiar with NASCAR and by oh, those yeah. people, I'm talking about me. Um, can you can you explain to us what are what are NASCAR races? It, it's a it's a stock car racing means they have to be standardized cars, mm-hmm. Honda, and they have to be made in America, which Toyota is. Um, and uh, in fact, they're kind of made in America so they can be in NASCAR. Oh. And it's a, it's a circular track, and they turn left <laughs> for about three hours. <laughs> And this is not your natural habitat. It is fascinating that that would be a sport, but I mean, yeah, all kinds of things are. So this instinct was already there to explore and be interested and curious about the other America. I think you've really found something because I think it was that essay that made me think like, I have so many preconceptions about other um, worlds and... um, what if I'm totally wrong, which I am consistently. Mm. And I certainly am in that essay. The people were so nice to me and it was so fun. And I found myself really uh, discovering um, um, possibilities that I, I constantly am challenging myself. As long as I feel safe, I really like to go. And like one of my favorite bars um, in San Francisco is called the Rat Trap. And it's like, guys, it's super straight and like heavy metal. It's guys in like, clown makeup like death clown horror movie makeup and they've got snacks on the on the bar that's like cheese balls but there's a mouse trap in it for any fool like it's all set up like barbed wire for you and what it is it's a gay bar i mean it's not they're not gay but they are so outsider in the world that they are wearing it on their and they're totally welcome like anybody you just have to get past the facade and it's it's, they're just weirdos like me. Mm. And that's a great bar because I'm like, you're like me, even though I would never, it's so scary. <laughs> so I've learned to, um, I've been rewarded for going past things that scare me, mm. as long as I am sort of neutral and open. Mm. Um, and again, I do go in as a middle-aged white guy, even if not straight, so I have some protection around me. Uh-huh. But And know. so as you're going on this road trip, do you go with the intention knowing that this might influence, inform, inspire another chapter in the less cinematic universe? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the lesser verse? Or the, <laughs> I, I, you know, I did not plan to write a less novel when I did this research. I was, didn't know what it was going to be. I knew it was what, I just knew it's what interested me. Uh-huh. For whatever, it was the research I was going to do and then figure out the novel after. Uh-huh. And so I didn't know what I was taking notes on. Isn't it's, that weird? It is a bit weird because it feels so natural in terms of what Les would do, you know, Les kind of like gallivants around and he's so game, right? So when did the key turn for you and when did you realise actually this, this fits Les here, the journey where you're kind of taking they can actually be married. What, what unlocks that for you? It was between the two trips, where, which were a year apart. Uh-huh. I started a new book. I was away at a writer's colony. I wrote happily for six weeks, and I got like 150 pages done, and I printed it out and read it, and it was total crap. Wow. I mean, I, had the, I, I just had the wrong everything about it. What, what, what wasn't working? Well, I... I had a like a young character whose uncle shows up and like he has a van and there's all kinds of things you can see that made its way into this book and and a pug and they takes him on an adventure and it was just so hokey and um I just felt like if only I had a naive main character and an elderly other character I could put in the van instead yeah. of these terrible ones I've come up with and I just there's a point every time I write, and I think when a lot of people write, where you just have to submit to what the book is going to be. And I was like, I guess it's Arthur Less again. <laughs> did, you, did you have any reservations? Because Less, when you think about it, is such a contained, brilliant piece of fiction. Uh, and you, you're not obliged to write a sequel at all. Did you have any reservations or did anyone... Uh, that you had to deal with have any reservations about less two, too fast, too furious? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. Oh, my, my agent said, you, you must not write a sequel. Huh. It is unseemly. <laughs> really? I would have thought that, like, an agent would think less worked. Let's do more of this. No, she was like, you cannot write a sequel to a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel. 
It is not done. Is that, is, I don't know, like, is that true though? Because it's I, not true because I researched it. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, Philip Roth did it, John Updike did it. Viet Thanh Nguyen did it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Elizabeth Strout did it. Elizabeth Strout just did it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and Jennifer Egan did it. Jennifer Egan Oh my just God, did she's it. so wrong. Your agent is so wrong. Exactly. So right. I fired her. No, I didn't <laughs> fire her. I just didn't. You, you just know when someone is, you just know when you, as Michael Shabon said, now you can write any book you want. And I was like, the hell with it. Yeah. I wanted to be writing about him again. Also because I was writing about something that terrified me, which was about my country. I found I realized that this was a very comfortable way for me to do it because I could, Arthur Les is not me, but he certainly shares a lot of parts of me. So it's comfortable for me to make fun of myself mm. as I'm going through it instead of making fun of the country uh -huh. because I'm not good at that. And it feels obvious, too easy. Mm. Um, so I wanted, um, I, was, I felt better doing the other thing. So let's clarify that a little bit more. I remember when you were talking about less, the mission statement was to write a book that embraced joy, that engineered joy as well, yeah. instilled joy in the readers. If that was the mission statement for the first book, what was the mission statement for this book? Oh, wow, what a good question. It wasn't that. It wasn't... Um, I felt it was to correct imbalances in less, weirdly. And I've talked to a couple other writers who have written, who wrote sequels, follow-ups to their other book, and they were sort of, had been thinking about the first book and wanted to um, set the record straight a little. And so for me, it was thinking about his, his lover, Freddie Pellew, and thinking, that's not really a balanced relationship. I want to balance that out thinking about less traveling through the world and, and time, enough time had changed, I thought, there's some white privilege here that I have to think about and I want to, him to be confronted with. I just thought there were new things and I wanted to, um, to take away the, 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 the shine of the protagonist a little, but it's fun to humiliate him in these books for me. <laughs> and I take great pleasure. So it sounds like you've got a rule here, which is... A, a decent writing rule, which is you can't make fun of the people you encounter or that the protagonist encounters. You have to make more fun of the protagonist. Otherwise, there's a cruelty there, right? Um, I, I wonder whether that feels like a bit of a tightrope act in what, in what you're doing because you're writing this sequel in a time of incredibly fractured political discourse in America, gun violence, conspiracy theories, what, what COVID did to the country as well in terms of deaths in sheer numbers. Like, there is a lot going on in the United States. So is it hard or is it challenging to make sure that you find the good in America without romanticising or sentimentalising it, I guess? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it was... It was... Um, kept me up at night, you know? I was trying to... Luckily... As a writer, I don't have to have a good answer. I just have to raise a lot of questions. Yeah. So that's mostly what I would do, is I would just try to sit and think. And I enjoyed the preparation for it, of reading a lot of American literature, like 19th century. We don't go back before that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Neither do you. Um, <laughs> it's so, I'm, I'm partnered with, yeah, yes, that's right, you do. Um, uh, but my partner is an Italian, and he's always unimpressed by anything that I think is old. Um, uh, what was I saying? Uh, Rereading our, our supposed greats from the 19th century, which are almost unreadable now. They're such gibberish. And trying to, to put them, weave them through the, the text a little bit for uh -huh. any American studies majors out there. And and to sort of call into question them as well. And it just, it, I, all I could do was like um, sort of plant questions for myself and, and sort of booby trap the novel so that it would, it would explode from, from any possible sentiment mm. towards a country that, of course, I'm, it, I find it interesting to be from, but I'm not, 
I'm not a, a team player, mm. <laughs> particularly. Yeah. You know, I like a solo sport. Yeah. Um, for those of you who've read less, and maybe you're reading Less is Lost as well, but this is a very uh, quotable book. If you read it within company, it's the kind of book that you kind of lean over to a partner or a loved one and say, oh, my God, can I just read this section for you? I'm ambushing you now because I'm wondering what whether you would do? be able to... You're going to make me read it. Read Why don't you for read us it? now. <laughs> what would you prefer... I'll read it. I'll do it. Because, because you, when you talk about asking questions, um, you propose a really interesting question um, about America here. And I think it's worth hearing uh, what it is. I'll, I'll just pass this over to you in an unseemly way. I feel like I'm in a current affair. Read this. Read this now. Um, if you could start there, I, I just think it's a... I'm it happy to, I like that you dog ear your books down here at the bottom. Is that Australian? Yeah, I know, but it's um, it's very destructive. I think Brandon Taylor had a Twitter thread about how um, dog earing books discuss him. But yeah, if I dog ear a book from the bottom, it's a it's something quotable. If I dog ear it at the top, it's where I am. Oh, I I might. Sorry do that. to anyone who borrows my books. They're they're. A I don't disgrace. mind that. I think you should draw all over them and rip pages out. Yeah, okay, and I think that's you. fine. Do you want me to read that? Yeah, I'll just read that. Yeah, please. I think this is a good example of the kind of, this would be the thesis. This is, I wrote yeah. this long, early on in writing the book, and mm -hmm. I didn't know where I'd put it. You're very good. America, how's your marriage? Your 250-year-old promise to stay together in sickness and in health. First 13 states, then more and more until 50 of you had taken the vow. Like so many marriages, I know, it was not for love, it was for tax reasons. <laughs> but soon you all found yourselves financially entwined with shared debts and land purchases and grandiose visions of the future, and yet somehow from the beginning, essentially at odds, ancient grudges, that split you had, that still stings, doesn't it? Who betrayed whom in the end? I hear you tried going sober. That didn't last, did it? So how's it going, America? Do you ever dream of each being on your own again, never having to be part of someone else's family squabble, never having to share a penny, never having to bear with someone else's gun hobby or car obsession or nutrition craze? Tell me honestly, because I have contemplated marriage and wonder if it can't work for you, can it work for any of us? Mm. Thank you. Andrew Sean Green, yeah. everyone. That was clever to find that. <laughs> it's a good passage. You've got questions about America. Uh, you've already referred to questions of whiteness, which I want to refer to later. Because sure. I think like this is actually a really good, a great book that interrogates whiteness in a really interesting way. But I also, before we start on whiteness, I want to talk about gayness. Of course, I Let's want to talk, talk about, about gayness. It. <laughs> um, because there is a question that's also posed, which is, is... <laughs> Is Arthur Less a bad, <laughs> a bad gay? And, you know, as, as someone who uh, finds uh, gay dude parties really stressful and I didn't watch Drag Race until a few years ago and I secretly have contempt when I see a bunch of exclusively gay cisgender men travelling large packs, I sometimes feel like a bad gay you are. myself. I know. I know. You don't have to tell me. <laughs> I feel it within my bones. Um, from an earlier passage in the book, you talked about how Arthur Less certain tries, certainly tried his hardest to be gay. I'll read this section out because it's, it. it's brief and it's a funny blitz. He joined a gym that turned out to be a sex dungeon. He joined a political party that turned out to be a that turned out to believe a conspiracy theory about government health clinics. He joined a German language society that turned out to be a sex dungeon. <laughs> He joined a book group that turned out to be only for a political party. He joined a role-playing game club that turned out to be a sex dungeon. He joined a sex dungeon that turned out to be a government health clinic. It was also confusing. <laughs> um, that was a. That was I am so glad you picked that one out. When I wrote that, I was like, "That is the funniest thing I've ever written." It's so. <laughs> but it's I don't so think anyone funny. else would get it. You'll see that I doggied the bottom of that page. <laughs> so, can we just unpack? These feelings around being both a lost and a bad gay. Is this something that you feel within your bones as well, like I do? Yeah, absolutely. I remember, I think my finest act of drag was when uh, a friend said that he had, uh, this will make no sense to anybody, a share available on Fire Island. Now, Fire Island 
It, you might have seen it in some movie or something. It's a super gay island mm -hmm. outside of New York City. And a share means that you're sharing a bedroom with one of like a dozen gay men in a tiny house on the island. And I was like, I will totally do that. Because again, mm. my instinct is like, I don't belong there. Yeah. So let me go. What am I going to pack? Like, it was just fascinating to be with the regular gays mm. and just smuggle myself in and be like, let's go to the beer bust, you know, or the tea party. We all have to wear this. And it was, it was so foreign to me, the experience. Let, let's break that down a bit. Let's almost get anthropological about the gay world. Because when you talk about the regular gays versus, I guess you're implying irregular gay. What, what are the hallmarks that we're talking about? Here? Well, I think it's very mean of me to say regular gay. I think I just... There is a, uh, certainly, I think RuPaul's Drag Race is a good example of something that I, I don't enjoy a conversation that's only about that show, the way I don't like any conversation that's only about one Why thing. do you hate drag queens, Andrew Sean Greer? <laughs> <laughs> I love drag. I think RuPaul's Drag Race leaves out a lot of drag, <laughs> as wonderful as it is. And I think I, I find there might be other topics that are also interesting, you know, the way if other people, I don't talk only about it. American politics because it's boring mm -hmm. if you're not in there. And so I, 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 and I, I also react strongly when I see on Instagram that a gay friend is with like 12 other 50-year-old uh, bearded white guys. Yeah. Yay! In Palm Springs. I'm like, what? That's it? That's the world? Because I think I understand it though, mm. because it's wanting a world without friction mm. when they're going through their daily life or their, their, their life, they've gone through with so much friction. And I think it is weird of me to seek out friction mm. and to be willing to be called out and willing to be wrong and to change my mind and change myself. And I think that's weird mm. and, um, I'm not always good at it. Um, and, uh, but I know it's uncomfortable. Luckily, it's, I mean, it's my, my job and my vocation is to be uncomfortable mm. <laughs> a lot of the time. I'm uncomfortable with all of you, which is why there's secretly wine on stage for us. <laughs> but so, I'm, that's, that seems like a fine place for me. Yeah. So obviously this is a therapy session about why we feel like we're bad. <laughs> Counterfeit well, but gaze, how do you but... feel? Like, how would you define it? Oh, like, I feel... Your, your, your whole kind of like framing of outsiderness is interesting as well because I feel like, I don't know, like I'm an outsider in so many ways that, that the mainstream kind of gay space, especially in Sydney where I live, is a very kind of fenced yeah. space. But here's us talking about us. I'm curious about Arthur Less because he has these feelings as well and I feel like, well, actually... It's written in the book as one part of the dimension of him feeling like an outsider or feeling like a bad gay or questioning his gay credentials also has to do with his past and his relationships especially and the timeline and dynamics of his relationships. Can you unpack that a little for us? Well, I mean, he had, he had a, for some reason I invented for him um, a much older lover, a famous poet, who was married to a woman at the time, and he kind of stole him away mm. from, from Marion Brownburn. Um, not an experience from my life, I want to point out. Totally not. Uh, and, and then his, his next great experience was nine years of being a sort of sometime lover of his rival's son, mm. um, 15 years younger than himself, um, who he sort of never thinks about and discounts and then realizes... It was a real thing. It was the real thing. Mm. And also an experience I haven't had, but I found it interesting to think about um, switching through one's life from being like the young one learning things to suddenly not realizing it, that you're the older one mm. and what that experience would be like. Mm. I also feel like there are questions, implicit questions about, being gay in the world and questions of yeah, age, as you talk about it, like generation gaps, but also of monogamy and the, the tension between wanting that and wanting to reject it. And, yeah. you know, the liberation of being gay is you get to interrogate the models of relationships that, that we have. And yet at the same time, 
you know, once you've bought into a model of a relationship, you know, you're constantly questioning it while you're in it as well. Like, I feel like that's an undercurrent too. Well, and he kind of screws up his, well, he has a little freedom with Robert Brownburn mm. and he kind of uses it selfishly yeah. and um, it causes a rift mm. in their lives. So that's gayness. We've covered there gayness. There you go. Now. No, that's, what that's you the came best for. We're talking. <laughs> I also want to talk about whiteness because I feel like this is a really cool example of a book that captures this is really weird to say that captures the white experience like you've often got you know first nations authors or authors of color and we're always talking about you know the, the asian experience or the black experience and I feel like there's something in this that is really conscious about about whiteness and whiteness in america in particular um so you know, Les seems to be acutely aware of his place within the cultural mix of America and also his place of being a cisgender gay white man specifically. Um, you know, there's this recurring gag where he's assumed to be Dutch, but he's actually homosexual. <laughs> <laughs> what, what were the questions and what were the feelings that you had about whiteness that you wanted to invest in the book? Because I feel like those questions are really palpable. That is fascinating to hear you say that. Um, I have to say my instincts were not great at the beginning. I was talking about planning this book and I was at this artist retreat and talking with some writers of color, American, mm -hmm. and they were like, is it going to be one of those books where a white guy meets a lot of different people of different races and learns things in like a church? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I would never write that kind of book. Well, because I mean, I, I, the instinct is there to go back to what we've seen before. And one of them said, could you write a book about whiteness? Because that is, I just don't get what that is. Yeah. And she's like, I don't know what it is. You're, I want the white person to tell me what whiteness is because it's a mystery. And, and I was like, of course, my instinct was naive. I was like, well, I, I don't know what whiteness is, which is, I think, what a lot of white people, we sort of think of it as being invisible or something instead of being part of a very specific system. And... Um, I think there were the, the, the summer of George Floyd happened a mm. few years later um, where he was murdered by the police. And I think a lot of, I certainly sat and thought, I have to rethink my part in this. Mm. Like I thought of myself as a good person and like I had done all the right things. I have to think about it. And I think about my book too. And one thing grammatically I wanted to make sure was that the default human being was not a white man. Mm -hmm. So that if like went like if a, a, the server came over and poured coffee, I would often in novels, they'll tell you if they're black because that's important to know. But if they're not, then they must be white. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of the English language literature. And I just, that's, it can't be that way anymore. And it was certainly not helpful in my book about crossing America, where he's going to meet all kinds of people. So, um, and I, but I think I'm not the only person who's doing that. Mm. Um, I think, um, but I also thought about, um, this is pe peculiarly American, is that when I'm asked about where, where my people come from, I have a totally bullshit story that's been passed down to me that I can tell them. And the story is that Moses Greer came here in 1670 from Scotland and that we're all descended from him. I'm descended from one person? Mm. <laughs> it's like there's a, like a thousand people who like contributed to whatever I am. But I have this phony story that is really a certificate of whiteness mm. is what it is. And every time I heard, talked to a lot of of. of, of people who would have similar stories. I couldn't believe how similar we, our stories all were, so I put them in the book, and I tried to give Arthur Less the most ridiculous backstory I could think of, <laughs> which is that he's, he's a Walloon. <laughs> he's from, that his ancestor, um, Prudent de Less, came over in, to found New Sweden um, from Wallonia. And I thought, that's just totally ridiculous. Because <laughs> I wanted to make fun of that kind of yeah. Mayflower story that we all have, which is, um, it, which is just, just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and there's that thread of unease that you invest when, say, 
Arthur walks into um, a bar in the South that's predominantly white. He's an outsider because he's gay. He walks into a bar that's predominantly black. He's an outsider because he's white. Like, I really loved that you embrace discomfort without offering easy solutions. And is that something that you actively thought about investing there? Like, why, why create that contrast? The hard part was... The hard part wasn't to make it uneasy because I already felt that yeah. very distinctly um, was to make it funny, was to make the uneasiness funny for me. I thought a lot, for instance, um, when I was in the South, where I'm implicated in what happened there, my family is from the South, I thought, I'm going to go visit plantations of, of former enslavement um, because you can feel it's happened. Mm. You can feel something really bad happened there. Or I could. Any, any of us could. Would feel it. And I would visit these places. And it is not funny. Mm. You know, it is like going to a concentration camp. And I, I went to one that was very gone with the wind and like, you know, de de decorated for Christmas, the big house where the, the planter's family lived. And it was crazy. And then I went to another one um, where... It was in, in Louisiana that's famous, the Whitney Plantation, the story of slavery, where you do not go in the planter's house. You only visit the slave camids because there were only five or six people who ever lived in that, the planter's house, and there were hundreds of people who worked there, and it's their story. And there's mm. monuments and statues, and all their names are there and where they came from, and it's really moving experience. And then I went to a third plantation, the Frogmore Plantation in Arkansas, and it's I put it in the book pretty much the way it happened, which was there it was a white woman who showed us a boring video about how cotton is made. <laughs> and, um, and then we went to another log cabin and we watched a weird video about the history of slavery that was super strange, but very accurate. Mm. And then the lights came up and there was a black woman who said, all right, now let's go see where we all lived. And it was a switch in our expectation. All of us, we were all white who were on the tour, and we all freaked out. Mm. Because previously, like you go to the, the Whitney Plantation, you were, I'm there to be very serious about what happened, and I'm on the right side. Or I go to the Crazy Gone with the Wind one, and I'm like, what a wonderful place for a wedding. You know, I'm always, everyone's in agreement, but here, we, the switch was too much. Mm. And you could feel everyone panicking, wanting to, some people left because we didn't want to be implicated. And she would use the second person. Mm. And she would say, here we are at where, at the feed house. You gave us two pounds of pork every week. We had to hoe ourselves. And wow. it was, um, and I realized what was funny, which it was, it was us. Mm. It was our panic mm. and inability to sit there with the implication that we were, are still benefiting from it. That was doesn't sound funny when I'm saying it now, but, um, but it's sure funny in the book. <laughs> but that unease is, is funny. The panicky scramble of it all. The scramble in your mind and trying to like, and at the, I, 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 it did end with the guide singing a spiritual and it's very moving spiritual. Um, and then there was an old woman who the next thing she said was, was she said, how much does a bale of cotton weigh? And our guide said, the Lord has so blessed me, madam, that I do not know. Mm. And I was just like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. Like that, the woman who was the, the old white woman, she would not let us, let herself, she had to make this woman talk about something like how much does cotton weigh? Yeah. And the guide would not let it happen. And that struggle in a it's incredible. It was so weird. It's an incredible sequence as it's laid out in the book. I was completely riveted by, by those exchanges. Um, we are going to open it up to the audience soon. So there will be ro roaming mics. So if you've got a question, um, please put up your hand. If you've got a comment, save it for the signing table. We love questions here. But before we um, take audience questions, I... I think like less is lost is about so many things that we've discussed already. Um, less is constantly sideswiped with so many things that he encounters and uh, things that happen to him. But he's also emotionally sideswiped by his family in a lot of ways, um, with his sister and and with his father. 
And those exchanges, I feel like, carries a lot of melancholy about... I mean, yes, the book starts off, you know, with portraits of grief at a funeral, but I feel oh, the passages about his family, like, really hit me, you know, the idea where you're FaceTiming your sister and she's making jokes about a tremor, um, the exchange that he has with his dad afterwards, um, that he does not expect to go the way that it does. What, what did you want to convey with Les and his connection or disconnection with his family? Well, I, it's a good question. I mean, I'm, I'm going to sideways answer it, mm. which is to say, you know, I'm, I'm, you've really gotten to some, the heart of a lot of things that no one's asked me about before. And I know it sounds like this is going to be a miserable book to read. And I think I've just... <laughs> it's all very funny. <laughs> what I want to say is that what I wanted to get to was the hardest things that I could think about. Yeah. And, and that's what, actually what comedy is. Mm. It, I mean, if it's for me, is to get to the hardest things you could possibly talk about and hope other people are also as uncomfortable as you are and to, and to go right into it mm. and, and get through it somehow, through the flames. And so I wanted to talk about, I don't have a sister. I have a wonderful dad who doesn't do anything like that. But it, I did want to think about, I mean, you're the expert on family um, <laughs> <laughs> more than me. Um, Father figures, how to, how to grow old, um, what's passed down. Mm. And maybe that's related to the United States, too, mm. of like, what do we, we sort of forget we have a past of any kind. We ignore it. Um, but what's, what, where are we going? You know, what's the con? What's the, who do I look to for, for who to be? You know, I'm in my 50s. What, I don't know what my 60s are going to look like. Am I supposed to be like an, I was referred to as an gay elder recently. And oh, I was wow. Like, oh, okay. man. I, I, thought, I thought geriatric millennial. That's me. Oh, did you really? Confronting, <laughs> like, confronting enough gay elder, my God. Gay elder. I'm like, well, how does, I, do I dress like this? Is it a few more <laughs> buttons? I don't know what gay elder looks like. I don't have the wardrobe. It's the pussy boat era. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so I think the family was, was tied into that for mm. me. You know? Yeah. I, and talking about, I have a tremor. Mm. That is one of the most, um, like embarrassing things if it happens in public. And uh, so I thought I'll put it in the book yeah. because I'm, it's so scary to me to talk about it that I'll just put it right there where anyone can see it. Mm. And then it won't be scary anymore because yeah. it'll be ridiculous. Mm. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. But that's what it is. That's what comedy is. Yeah, and it's what Les's sister does as well, which is like laugh through the discomfort, yeah. shine a light on it. Um, thank you so much, Andrew. Ben, thank I, you. I, w I would love to take questions from the audience now, so I think maybe the lights will come up slightly so we can see you raise your hands. Please don't be shy. Ooh, we look, not. it's Rainbow! We've, got, we've already got a question right in the middle <laughs> in, the, in the back row. Um, and yes, uh, uh, hand up high, hand up high. There we go. A microphone right in the back row. And did someone else have their hand raised? Because we can pass the mic to you. Yeah, here at the front as well. Thank you so much. Oh, but we'll take mics. you at the back first. Hello, what's your name? Hi, uh, I'm Danish. Hello. Hi, Danish. Hi, Danish. Hey, you both. Um, so I really have appreciated the way in which you subvert the trope of the sad gay, the loveless gay in both, both books. Um, but there's another trope um, that they do follow, and it's not necessarily a negative one, but it's the one where the person learns how to love even as the object of love is kind of separated from the person, right? So in, in, in both these books, there's... And so, so the first one, of course, they're not actually together, but yeah. there's a sense of longing. Um, and the second one, they are together, but then you kind of have to bring that sense of distance in at the very start so that... Arthur can learn his new lesson about love. And I just, I was curious when I finished reading the second one, whether there's a version of the story where Arthur learns to love while Freddie sits in, you know, sort of the A story with him. Or is that just, is the lack of conflict there just not exciting enough? Is there a reason why we don't have those stories? I <laughs> he's giving you the premise for the third book I on think a you are. Wow. 
I didn't think to myself, if I were in a third one, could they just be together for the whole time? <laughs> but I, I really, I had to separate them for the purposes of conflict, I do have to say. I couldn't find a way uh, in this novel because, because I wanted it to be a novel about the Freddie not giving an, getting enough balance in the relationship. And so I thought of putting them together on the road in a van, and it just sounded like just like a terrible sitcom somehow. <laughs> but I think you're right. It's about being... Um, I think the first one is, is learning, is accepting that, of being loved. And I think this one is about um, understanding the, the, the responsibilities of, of loving. Hmm. But I just made that up right now. What do I know? <laughs> Thanks so much for your question, Dinesh. There, there was a question at the front, and please put up your hand if you've got another question. Yeah, we'll get a mic up to you, sir, as well. Hi there, I'm Steph. Um, there's something uncanny about seeing or hearing the pandemic referenced in media. I watched uh, the Sex and the City reboot, and they kind of like mention it, and I got like full body cringe from it. <laughs> Do you think we should mention it in media? Did you think about including it in Less Is Lost? I talked to a lot of writers about during the pandemic, we would, I would see them across the yard or, you know, in travels about what we were doing about it. And almost all of us were like, mindset in late 2019. <laughs> um, I think I had, I am not good at contemporary commentary moment by moment. And I certainly, I think we watched in America in 9-11 attacks that all the, most of the books that came out in direct reaction to it were not, they, they missed the emotional mark. We'd already changed. And yet there have been some books. There was a book by Gary Steingart that came out during what we would call the pandemic um, called uh, Our Country Friends, which was brilliant because he captured the first part of the pandemic in America perfectly without it being in the past, being unfinished. Um, but it's, I'm, I don't want to touch that. I need some distance mm. to process things and I'm still there. I may never write about that, which is a shame because the problem is that we would actually pretend it never happened like we did with the Spanish flu. Mm. That could happen. Um, but I'm not, are you, would you write about it? We actually had this conversation when developing a TV show recently, ah. and we've just decided it doesn't happen in this universe <laughs> because you, you don't necessarily question it when you watch TV, right? It's yeah. just no one's asking where, where is the pandemic. What's interesting about Sex and the City is it exists in a universe where the pandemic happened, but 9-11 didn't. Weird. Um, but thank, thank you so much for your question. It's a really interesting one. We had a question up here as well. We'll get the mic there. And I'd love a question from the sides. We see you people on I the love margins you on the sides. Uh, here yeah. and here. So <laughs> the liminal please spaces. raise your head. Um, thanks, guys. That was fantastic. Um, I'm not exactly sure what my question is, but I'm thinking about being uh, like Arthur, like you, and like me, um, being an older white, male... A gay elder. Gay person, a gay <laughs> elder. And how growing up being gay and white, it was sort of subversive and different and being feeling like an outsider. But in this day and age, being old and white and gay and male isn't so, isn't so outside anymore. And I'm wondering, do you feel like that's true for, for your character or for you in the world? Or is being, being old and white and gay and male just regular now. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's regular, but I do think it's a, a strange adjustment that we have had to make having grown up certainly not feeling privileged. Mm. You know, having friends who died of AIDS and seeing a government that didn't care really felt like, like an outsider. And um, it, it, the, the change in the world, although it's about to change back, let's just say, um, has been shocking and that as a, a, a 50, almost 52 year old gay white man, it, I have incredible privilege. Look, and here I am, you know, flown to Australia for a new book. Like that doesn't happen to every author. And I think it takes some adjustment. And I think there's a lot of men our age who don't want to do that adjustment because they live through a painful time. And it's, it's, it's hard. You know, I have heard that 
mm-hmm. a lot from from men I know, mm-hmm. and I think it takes a little neuroplasticity mm-hmm. to to for all of us to look at where we are, um, and and have some humility about it, mm-hmm. and uh, and a sense of humor about it, which is actually something our generation of gay men is really good at. <laughs> so I recommend that. <laughs> I love that answer, and I loved your question. Thank you so much for asking it. Do we have a question from either of the sides, to the sides of the stage? I mean, we'll get questions from the middle. They're shy on the sides. Yeah, there's one right there. Thank you. Hi. Hi, Andrew. Um, I think I remember you saying um, the last time you were here in the leather pants that (laughs) when you wrote less, you (laughs) you didn't think that it would be published or that anyone would read it, and so you were able to kind of make it a book for yourself and to sort of write it for you and put things in there that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. And I wondered, um, given that you probably knew there was going to be an audience this time around, were you still able to put things in there just for you? And if so, what were they? That's a great question and a good memory. <laughs> I, I did say that. That was true. And it was hard this time. I had to somehow access the idea that maybe no one would ever read it or try to write that way, which I have to say being the pandemic, unfortunately did help me with that because I didn't see a lot of other people Mm. in real life at all. I saw my boyfriend and there was a dog that felt like a person. Um, But it just, it took a lot to, um, to, to, to have the same sense of like, well, what the hell? No one will ever read it. So I put in some really humiliating things about myself. Um, I, my first kiss is in here as Arthur Les's first kiss, and it's just <laughs> mortifying. <laughs> and I never tell anyone about it. And I thought, I'll put that in there because I totally deserve that. You know, <laughs> everyone should know. That was my first kiss. <laughs> you masochist. <laughs> it's just awful. <laughs> but things turned out great. So it's fine. But yeah, that was, I, I, that's how I accessed it. I was like, is there something worse that I left out of the first one? And there definitely was. Yeah. Mm. There's always something worse. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you dig deep. Thank you so much for your question. Was there one on this side at all? Oh, you're shy over there. That's totally fine. Hey, we've almost run out of time. I might actually just ask you two quick, quick okay. things before we wrap up. Um, I know that people regularly hop onto Instagram and, and have a chat with you or slide into your DMs and tell you what less means to them. What have been the most kind of memorable reactions to this book or the sequel? It's been out for a little bit now either from people online or people that you meet in person, what are the reactions that stay with you? Uh, uh, I mean, I do, I do get DMs a lot um, that, well, either it's like, you know, some Russian sex bot, mm. which I totally answer. Yeah. Um, or or it's, 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 a, it's a surprise to me. You know, I get people in countries that I've never visited, mm. um, Pakistan or something, who write to me and tell me. And it will either be, it's not who you think it would be. It could be a young gay man. It's often that. But it will also be a, a young woman because somehow it's less they're reacting to. Um, there's something about the story that feels liberating to them. Mm. Um, and... Um, and I think it's, it's a recent phenomenon, uh, not so much in Japan. It's been in manga comics for a while where the, the male-male relationship is like something like girls love to read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it, that has caught on um, everywhere. And I think yeah. that Lest is read that way by a lot of uh, young women. And I oh, think where is the Lest graphic novel? Thing. <laughs> it's this, that is really moving to yeah. me. And it's also moving. Uh, but Lest is lost, I, I get... Um, uh, I'm just starting to get reactions now. Uh-huh. And it's amazing to be in an era where readers can, I can actually tell what they're thinking because I had plenty of books where there was no way. But the really, um, one of the most fun things that happened to me recently that you might have seen on Instagram was that I sat down next to someone on a plane and he was reading Less is Lost and it was like a five, six hour plane trip. <laughs> and I put on Instagram, I was like, what do I do? <laughs> I mean, because if I tell him now, it's a super awkward six hours. 
But if I don't tell him, he'll. F- it's creepy. Yeah. Well, like I'm. I'm just clocking the. Des- I mean, your author photo is there, but it's like discreet and in the in the bottom corner. Yeah. Was he not connecting the dots? Well, I've got a mask on. Oh, I was sure. probably wearing something crazy like this. <laughs> like, there's no identifying because no one knows what an author really looks like. And the author photos are. I tried to update the author photo. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if the Australian one has a. Is it mean a oh, gray yeah, you're sweater? In a fetch, you're in a fetching sweater. You look really butch in it, actually. Yeah. yeah. See, that's what he didn't pick up on. <laughs> <laughs> well, what happened after you said, I told, I decided, that's me. Yeah, I decided when we were descending that I would tell him, because mm-hmm. that would give us enough time to have a nice conversation, but not weird. And he was freaked out. Um, and I, the first thing I said was, I don't want to freak you out. And then his boyfriend was like, you are his favorite writer. He just got this book as a birthday present, and now you are just blowing his mind. It was so sweet. It was a really sweet moment. That's really gorgeous. And before we wrap up, I have to ask the obvious question, which is you didn't anticipate there being a sequel to Less necessarily, but now that you've written one... Is there more in the less cinematic universe to go? <laughs> I, I'm sure there is. I, I'm, not, I'm not ready yet because I have to figure out what the drama would be. Mm. I can't separate them again in like Antarctica and the Arctic Circle. It's just too much. So the next novel does not have Arthur Less yet. It could go <laughs> terribly wrong again, but I, I think I'm going to leave it for my future self. Okay, brilliant. Well, we look forward to that whenever it comes out. Um, hey, just before we wrap up, we just really want to give another thank you and a shout out to the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund, um, a Victorian Government and City of Melbourne Partnership. We want to give a shout out to RMIT Culture and, of course, Hachette Australia, who publishes Andrew's wonderful books here in Australia. Um, Andrew's books will be for sale in the foyer, thanks to reading and he'll be signing copies in the salon upstairs. Look for ushers. They'll direct you how to get there. If you've already got a copy, which I expect you do, you know Christmas is almost upon us. Hanukkah, if you give gifts for Hanukkah as well. So think about those people in your life and spend big. But um, for now, could you please join me in thanking our wonderful guest tonight, Andrew Sean Greer. Thank you, Benjamin. And for our sign language interpreter. That was Benjamin Law in conversation with Andrew Sean Greer. This event was presented in partnership with RMIT Culture and made possible with the generous support of Hachette Australia. It was part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling, a short series of Big Ideas program, supported by the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund, a Victorian Government and City of Melbourne partnership. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.